As we turn to God's Word this morning, we're going to look at first an Old Testament lesson and then uh, a question answer from our Heidelberg Catechism before we turn to the passage of Scripture at hand. So I'd invite you, if you would, to turn with me first to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. We've just finished a series that we've been looking at for the first several months of this year on what it means to live by faith, and we've been, we use that as kind of a, a reflection on what the Bible has to say is reflected in our Heidelberg Catechism, a couple of questions on what true faith is. And now we're going to go back to some other parts of the Catechism as it explains uh, the Scriptures to us. And one particular part that we looked, late, we looked this past year at the Apostles' Creed Uh, But I actually left out one part of that so that I could deal with it here in this Lenten season. And that is where the Apostles' Creed talks about uh, forgiveness of sins. And so I want to explore that this evening with a a story that comes from the Lenten uh, story. But we're going to start with Psalm 32. Probably most of you know that Psalm 51 is a psalm of David in confession of his sins when he committed his sin with Bathsheba and all of that sordid tale. What you may not know is that many scholars believe that Psalm 32 is a sequel to that. It's actually David's response after he's been forgiven by God and about the joy of forgiveness. So let's read Psalm 32. I'm going to read the first seven verses and then just verse 11 at the end. There David says, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble. And surround me with songs of deliverance. And then in verse 11, we hear David's song of deliverance. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. And then I want to look at Heidelberg Catechism, question answer 56, as it deals with the phrase in the Apostles' Creed, What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? And the answer is, I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, by grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ to free me forever from judgment. And then I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew 26 and 27. Matthew 26 and 27. We're going to read two stories there. We're going to start at Matthew 26, verse 69. That's the story of of Peter at the 
the house of Caiaphas, while Jesus is on trial. And the previous verses are uh, kind of an extended view of Jesus on trial before the Sanhedrin and before the high priest Caiaphas. And we see Jesus standing strong, and then the very next story shows a wavering Peter at the same location. I think Matthew's intention is to put these two stories next to each other so that we can contrast and compare Jesus and Peter. But then, as we start chapter 27, we see another story that set uh, that next morning in that same context of Jesus' trial. It's a story about Judas. And I think that Matthew also includes that there so that we can see a contrast between Peter and Judas. And that's the contrast and comparison that I want to focus on for a few moments uh, this afternoon as we look at what it means to be forgiven, as we look at a tale of two sinners. So we'll pick it up at Peter's part in Caiaphas's house. Peter is in the courtyard of Caiaphas the high priest. It says, Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, where another girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned, he said, for I betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. We'll conclude our reading at that point. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to you, sinners like Peter and Judas, help us to learn something about how to approach our sin, how to respond to it, how to repent of it, and how to find restoration through the one who died for our sin, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I read a survey recently that only 17% of the American population refer to God in any way when asked to define sin. That is, 83% see sin as something merely negative that has had an impact on their life that that they in some way need to get cleaned up, but they see no reference to God and that God has anything to do with a standard he sets, which we sin against. The trouble is if God is not in the picture, then we can find no real solution to our sin. 
and the guilt lingers. William Willimon once wrote, We fill our rooms with the trophies, diplomas, rings, photographs, and blue ribbons of good memories. But deeply hidden in the center of our being is where we stuff the memories too painful to remember. Every person has a secret room somewhere or a trunk hidden away in the attic, a closed casket buried deep in the basement of the soul, closed, dusty, cluttered with dark moments, memories we'd as soon forget. And the older you get, the more memory you have to put in that room, that trunk, that grave. The older you grow, the more you have to forget. What is remorse but bitter memory? What is guilt but accusing memory? Well, as we near the Passion Week of Jesus, we encounter in the story of Jesus suffering two glaring sinners, Peter and Judas. Matthew, I think, puts these stories together for a purpose, to compare the sins and to contrast the responses. So what is Matthew trying to teach to the church of his day through these stories? And how is God speaking through these stories to us today? It's easy to look at these two disciples of Jesus and say, well, there's no comparison. Judas's betrayal was far worse than Peter disowning Jesus. But is that really true? Don't forget that Jesus had said, whoever disowns me, and that was Peter's sin, right? Whoever disowns me before men, I will disown before my Father in heaven. So as sin goes, both are equally as serious. In fact, we see three parallel aspects in each of these sins. There's, with each of these sins, a warning, a temptation, and A snowball effect. Jesus had warned Peter and the others that they would not be able to follow him. When Peter boasted that, well, he didn't know about the others, but even if all the others fell away, he would follow Jesus, Jesus immediately prophesied that Peter was going to deny him, not just once, but three times. Now, to give him credit, Peter did follow Jesus while the others fled. It may have been his devotion or perhaps only his pride that made him want to live up to his boast. Regardless, he became an easy prey for the tempter. In contrast to Jesus on trial before Caiaphas, who didn't falter before the Sanhedrin when threatened with punishment and death, Peter the Rock crumbled at the voice of a mere servant girl. And we see the snowball effect in words and physically. Peter starts with a public denial, and then the second time he's asked, he adds to that denial an oath before God, kind of like swearing on the Bible. And then the third time, he finally calls down curses on himself as if to, to say, may God strike me dead if I'm lying. It just snowballs. Peter had gotten in over his head. And he seems to realize that, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, because we also see him physically distancing himself. He starts in the center of the courtyard, and then he moves to the gateway, and then finally outside the gate.
Judas has a similar thing going on, although in a different order. The temptation came first. Judas had a chink in his armor. Either he had given up on Jesus being the type of Messiah, perhaps a political Messiah that he was looking for, or perhaps Judas just wanted a better lifestyle. He wanted money, that 30 pieces of silver. Or maybe he wanted friends in high places like the Sanhedrin. Whatever it was, this became more important than following Jesus as rabbi and son of God. Well, Jesus at the Last Supper warns him. He, he reveals his knowledge of the plot and in effect gives Judas an out. But Judas doesn't take that warning. And then we see this sad story at the beginning of chapter 27. From turning Jesus over to questioning to seeing Jesus condemned to death, Judas witnessed something he apparently had not anticipated. He got himself in over his head. Now what might Matthew be trying to teach to his audience, to the church for whom he's writing this gospel? He's writing a church facing persecution from Rome. And he seems to be warning them that striving for physical safety, economic stability, and a better standing in the community must not come at the cost of denying Jesus. And that was a real temptation in his day. That the temptation to achieve a better life whether avoiding persecution or just being part of a better crowd, must not result in betraying other believers and therefore betraying Christ himself. He warns of the snowball effect that can come from giving in to the most innocent-seeming temptations. But what about us? How does it speak to us? Well, we are all deniers and betrayers in our sin. We're all deniers and betrayers in our sin. What is sin? Well, you cannot divorce God from sin because God has set an absolute standard and sin is missing the mark. Alistair Big once wrote, literally to sin means to miss the mark. He says, I don't know if you've ever seen the World Darts Championships. One of the main competitions is held in England each Christmas. Two competitors stand nearly eight feet from a board 18 inches wide and throw darts at it. Thousands turn up to watch them. And the worst thing the players can do is miss the board, to throw short or to throw wide. These contestants are wonderful at it, and it sounds very easy, but if you ever never tried it, have a go. It's not as simple as it looks. Well, that's what the Bible says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone throws and misses when it comes to glorifying, to recognizing, pleasing, loving, and following the God who made us, who sustains us, and who gives us everything we have. You can miss the target by an inch or by a mile, but no one fails to miss. Often, we don't care much whether we miss or not. We're not even aiming at living at a way, in a way that pleases God, but rather one that pleases ourselves. But even when we do care and do try to obey God, we still miss. Even on the best day, I miss the mark, the target, I sin. See, we're all deniers 
and betrayers. Maybe not as bold as Peter or Judas, but in subtle ways. We may deny Jesus by failing to confess him before others. We might betray him by exchanging him for a better lifestyle. But I think Matthew's real purpose in tying these two stories together is to note the contrast in response. In response. How do we deal with our sin? Sin's a fact of life since the fall. How do we deal with our sin? Now Luke gives us the detail that when the rooster crowed, Jesus looked at Peter, who then dissolved into tears. Notice what Peter did and didn't do. First, Peter didn't try to make amends. You know, it's kind of surprising, perhaps. As impulsive as Peter was, we'd expect him to suddenly snap to and say, i got to do something about this and maybe rush the guard like he did in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, cutting off the high priest's uh, servant's ear. Or maybe to make a bold confession. But he doesn't do any of that. He apparently realized there was nothing he could do. There's nothing he could do to make up for what he had just done. Instead, he went alone into the darkness, dissolving into bitter weeping. And I think this showed true repentance. The sign of repentance is to detest one's sin, to beg forgiveness, and to show a change of heart. And Peter's repentance and true sorrow opened then the way for Jesus to restore Peter, both privately and, and publicly. We'll look at that a little bit later after Easter. And he went on to become a bold and powerful leader in the Christian church. For Judas, there was no rooster crow or look from Jesus, but a verdict of guilty that the Sanhedrin placed on Jesus and a self-imposed death sentence for Judas. The most important phrase we read there is he was seized with remorse. Unlike Peter, Judas did try to make amends. He threw himself at the feet of the Sanhedrin as a betrayer of innocent blood, which was punishable by death and according to Jewish law. Perhaps he was looking to get a new trial for Jesus, maybe offering himself to take Jesus' place. And then when they didn't go for that, he threw the blood money, the 30 pieces of silver, into the temple. I almost wonder if he's throwing it at the offering receptacles as his way of trying to make payment for his sin. But he didn't show repentance as much as he showed remorse. Remorse is a revealing word. Close in Greek spelling to the word for repentance, but a great difference in meaning. It's regret at the result of the sin. Regret at the result of the sin, but not a change of heart for the sin itself. And he not only showed remorse, but as a result he gave in to despair. Repentance leads to restoration, but remorse leads only to despair. He did all he could 
to try to make up for his sin except the one thing he needed to do, which was repent of his sin. Apparently, he envisioned a God of judgment, not of grace, and in despair took his own life. Frederick Beekner says, despair has been called the unforgivable sin. Not presumably because God refuses to forgive it, but because it despairs of the possibility of being forgiven. Now, why would Matthew want to tell this story? What point is he trying to make in the early church? Well, remember that in the early church, Peter had become nearly a saint, and Judas the equivalent of a devil. But in comparing the two stories, Matthew shows the fine line between the two men. And it came not in their sins, which were both as bad, but in their responses. Repentance, a change of heart, versus remorse, regret over the result. Inability to atone and an understanding of that, that I can't atone for my own sins versus an attempt to make amends. Hope in the grace of God versus despair of God's judgment. What is God saying to us in this story? We all deny and betray Jesus in various ways. The difference is in our response to our sin. When we look into his face and recognize our sin, what is our response? Trying to make amends flies in the face of Christ's work on the cross. To try to make amends for your own sin is, in essence, to say, sorry, Jesus, you really didn't have to go through the trouble of Good Friday. I I can take care of this myself. It's a slap in the face, another nail in a hand. But the point of the cross is that also that we do not need to give in to despair. If we repent, change our heart, the God of grace gives us the hope of restoration. Victor Hugo's compelling novel, Les Miserables, features two characters I think similar to Peter and Judas. Jean Valjean is a newly released prisoner imprisoned for stealing a loaf of bread for his sister and her seven starving children, who, once he's released, encounters Monsignor Bienvenu, a bishop, and the only person ever to treat him kindly. While staying with him, he steals the bishop's silver cutlery and is promptly caught by the police, brought before the bishop, awaiting words of condemnation, awaiting being sent back to prison for years, Instead, the bishop tells the police that he gave the silver cutlery to Valjean as a gift. And and then he adds, yes, but I gave you the candlesticks too. Why didn't you take them along with the cutlery? Now go in peace. And by the way, my friend, you need not come through the garden. You can always come and go through the front door. And Valjean is freed. Deserving punishment, Valjean received mercy. And it ultimately changed his life. But in his initial response, the author Victor Hugo reveals what lies in every heart's response 
to grace. Humiliation and pride. He writes of Valjean, he could not have said whether he was touched or humiliated. Valjean, however, has his life changed by this grace. Enter the second character, police captain Javert. Javert has made it his life's goal to arrest Valjean once again. He's hounding him doggedly. When later in the story, Javert attempts to infiltrate the student revolution and is caught, and Valjean offers to see to Javert's fate, offers to take care of this problem for the students, he finally has the life of his nemesis in his hands. But when Valjean pretends to be executing Javert, but in fact sets him free, Javert faces a crisis of his own self-understanding. He cannot understand or accept the grace Valjean offers. Musing to himself, what sort of devil catches someone in a trap then sets him free? Vengeance was Valjean's, but he gave me back my life. And Javert cannot understand, much less accept that grace. And because of it, he, like Judas, takes his own life. Do we know that grace? Can we humble ourselves to accept it? Jesus knows when we have disowned or betrayed him by our words and actions. And he looks at us sadly but lovingly. When we see his eyes on us, when we hear the rooster crow, it is all right, maybe even proper, to weep bitterly. Yet as we do, the cross stands behind him to remind us that the one we've disowned and betrayed will never disown and betray us. Jesus, we thank you for your death on the cross. We thank you that you went where we could not go and expect to have life eternally, but you did it for us. Now we pray that out of that grace, we might be grace givers to other people. But when we sin, that we might know that we have a God who is willing to forgive if we just confess, if we are just repentant. Help us to do, be so, help us to do so. For Jesus' sake, amen.